Well, good morning, or I should say good evening. I, I'm not used to saying good morning here. Good evening, and welcome to the Association for Reformed Theology. Uh, we have, we are, we've stayed faithful and we've dwindled, and that's good. That's a good reflection on you. Um, I want to say um, uh, a few things. I want to ask you to pray for Sutton's uh, stepbrother, Maury, who has uh, had some health issues, and, and, and I think they put that on the prayer chain recently. So if you consider Maury in your prayers before the Lord. Um, I think Jim Sullivan had a birthday. I think he turned uh, 53, 54, 54. That's right, earlier this, this week. So praise God. And I think Aaron Sullivan was... Uh, became a deacon at Pine Lake. I saw that. What an honor. Uh, congratulations on that. Um, so tonight, uh, we're going to say a prayer. Uh, we're going to have a fantastic speaker, and I'm going to let uh, Weston come up in a little bit and just introduce him. But let me begin by just saying a word of prayer, and we'll get going. Father, um, we thank you uh, for your grace to us, your grace that we discover uh, through your word that reveals Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our hope. And so tonight as we come together to study uh, Bob Inc., I just pray, uh, Lord, that, that it would be things that would shine light upon the scriptures and which ultimately shine light upon Jesus, that we clearly know him better. Um, we do pray for Maury, for, for Sutton's brother, and we do celebrate uh, uh, Aaron's, uh, his, um, his role as deacon over at Pine Lake. God, we praise God for that. Uh, so God be with us now as we study this in Jesus' name. Amen. Weston, come on up. So I don't think Dr. Brock knows this, but I know a creepy amount of stuff about him um, because I know a ton of people who know him very well, and yet we have never met. And so it was kind of interesting when I, when I called him, um, I was like, I started talking like we'd been friends for years, like, hey, Corey, hey, it's Weston, so we've got this thing like it help with, and it dawned on me about 15 words in. He had no idea who I was, um, but we know all these same people. So um, uh, I'm excited for him to be here. I'll tell you this. Uh, everyone who I know who has heard Corey speak um, always says that you don't want to miss one of his Sunday school classes, one of his, his, um, one of his uh, courses that he teaches at Bellhaven, RTS. He comes in and teaches for both of those organizations. Um, he's the associate, an associate pastor at First Pres in Jackson. Um, and if you remember, when we first started uh, Bobbing, we kind of gave some overview of who, who Herman Bobbing was. Um, and we used, I used this book to kind of give you an overview. This is a book written by Dr. Corey Brock. Um, so this, 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 the, the guy you're going to get to hear today, this evening, has um, spent a lot of time researching Herman Bobbing um, and has a lot to say about him. I'm really excited about it. He's going to, um, kind of like our normal, we have guest speakers, he'll take the first 35, 45 minutes somewhere in there and kind of go through the theology of Bob Inc. for the chapters assigned, um, and then we'll open up for some questions. And so we have these cards. I'll make sure these get passed out, and you can um, be writing as, as, as he's talking and be thinking. So um, y'all join me. Welcome uh, Dr. Corey Brock. Well, thanks uh, for having me. Thanks so much for calling me. Glad to be here. Um, so I, uh, what I want to do is kind of approach this like uh, I would a cor my courses, and I've taught a, a course on this particular figure and this particular subject, and so um, I know that we're going to have questions 
later on or, or discussion perhaps. I'm very happy, however, to stop at any time and start talking about something that you want to talk about that I might bring up or the chapter brought up. So please feel free to just kind of shout out or, or, or raise your hand and, um, and I'll be really glad to just dive right into anything that we might want to talk about. Uh, so we're, you guys have been reading through the wonderful works of God. Maybe just to, to go back to probably what you talked about at the, at the beginning of looking at this work, Bavink wrote this in 1909, and it, it's really important to get, when you approach Bavink's Christology, it's important to have the dates in the back of your mind because the context is really significant. For, for one, in 1909, Bavink was editing his magnum opus, his grand work, The, the Reform Dogmatics, his four-volume theology. And in 1909, at the end of it, he would publish R.D. Volume 3, which is on his Christology. So as we read this, uh, it's important to know that this was actually the section he was spending all of his time editing in that very same year, 1909. And as he wrote The Wonderful Works of God, he had just come home from his second trip to the United States. So he takes two trips in his lifetime to the U.S., one in 1892, one at the end of 1908. Uh, in the first trip, in the first trip, he saw himself as a European herald of old Calvinism in the New World. So he, he saw himself as taking the old Reformed faith to the new, newly, newly born America. It was only a century old at the time. And he saw America as a fledgling. And he wanted Calvinism to be the theology that would claim victory in North America. And he spoke in Canada, in New York, in Chicago, in Princeton, and all over heralding Calvinism. This is 1892. In 1908, he goes back and he's He's gotten rid of that project in a way. Of course, he's a Reformed theologian. He's a, a church pastor in a Dutch Reformed church. He's a Calvinist, of course. But he's gone back saying that the problems of the present have transferred from are we going to be Baptist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal in America to fighting for the hearts of young people, is what he said, in the face of this philosopher Nietzsche. So he said that the philosopher Nietzsche had claimed the hearts of young people in both Europe and the Americas, and that he saw his 1908 journey to America as a way of being a herald of mere Christianity and of doing apologetic work to win back the people to the old faith, to the faith of the fathers, to Christ himself. So he went at first on a mission, the first wave, on a very acute theological errand to win Baptist to Calvinism. And in the second, he went saying, I just want to see people believing in Jesus in his 1908 trip. And he gave in that 1908 trip a very famous uh, series of lectures called The Philosophy of Revelation that would become a, a book later that year. And in The Philosophy of Revelation, his basic premise that he was trying to speak all over the place in the U.S. at the time, and then he came and did the same in Europe, was that without belief in God's revelation, he said, if you do not believe in God's revelation, he argued, it is impossible to have a coherent concept 
of philosophy, nature, science, art, basic human life. He said you needed the concept of God condescending into the world to make sense of all the spheres of life and how they fit together. And that was his basic idea and philosophy of Revelation. He is one of the first three individuals in modern history to use the term worldview, which is what he meant by that. James Orr, Abraham Kuyper, and Herman Bavinck are the three that took the term worldview, the concept worldview, and made it popular. We use it in America all the time. It's because of Bavinck. It's because of Kuyper. It's because of, of an Englishman named James Orr. But this is what he was preaching about, the Christian worldview being the only thing that really fits with reality, with our actual experience. And he was trying to win people to Jesus in his second trip to the U.S. Now, however... In his first trip to the U.S., he was absolutely enamored with America, and he came back writing in his journal about how amazing and fresh and new it was, and in his second trip, he was quite, in in many ways, disgusted uh, with, with Canada and the U.S. for all sorts of reasons, but let me just read to you one that he wrote in his journal when he came back to Amsterdam. He said, he writes, and he writes, on American young people, or teenagers as we would say, colon, the behavior of American youngsters above all piqued my frustration. Quote, they act strangely coming and going without greetings. The children are rude, unmannerly. For example, young men are not introduced. They walk out the door without a parting greeting. Girls do not offer greetings. They ridicule, ridicule each other. They cross their legs in public. They lean forward, they act very freely and independently, but they are coarsely and uncivilized and careless. So this is what he said about the American teenager of 1908. And, you know, I don't know what he would say about about any of us today, much less the the American teenager of, of 2021, but he gets back to Amsterdam after saying that, and within three months he writes the book, The Christian Family, in response to his trip to the U.S. And by the end of the year, he's written Magnalia Dei, which is this book, The Wonderful Works of God, in response to his trip. And if you read the preface, his preface to The Wonderful Works of God, one of the things that he says very clearly is, I'm writing this book for modern young people. He says, for young men and young women who will not read advanced theology, And so he sees this work as a mere Christianity for the youth of Europe in 1909. And he thinks that the youth of the present day are a modern youth that have completely changed from a previous generation. So he's saying, I, when I was their age, was reading Calvin, was reading uh, Turretin, was reading these advanced systematic theological uh, treatises, and he was reading them in Latin when he was in 7th, 8th, ninth grade, as all the students would have been in the Netherlands of his youth. And he writes this book thinking, I need to write something that's different and more accessible for the modern young, young person. Right now, we come to this book today and read it and say, I don't know that you accomplished your task. Um, it, it reads more like the thing, the advanced stuff that you were talking about, but it was a very different time. And in the ne- Netherlands, very different standards uh, in, in terms of what kind of things were expected. Of course, he writes a 658-page book in Dutch, 
for the modern youth of his day. Uh, in the same year, he's also going to publish an article called On the Psychology of a Child. And he was a polymath, Bob Inc. was, and you see one of the things he's doing. He's, he's studying contemporary psychology while he writes a systematic theology, or technically a, a dogmatic theology, for the young people of his time. And he was asking questions in that article he wrote about what, uh, in the development, the psyche of a young person uh, and he talks about this in Reform Dogmatics as well. Uh, what are the best ways to speak and to preach at them and with them to bring them along into the Christian faith? And, and that's what he was trying to do with this particular work. It was targeted to teenagers and young professionals when it was first published back in his day. Now, the reason for all this is that this participates in Bob Inc.'s lifelong project. And, and you know, the reason we talk about Bob Inc., today in the 21st century all the time and more and more is because I, I think and would argue and a lot of others as well that Bavink is the most important theologian since John Calvin in the Reformed tradition and that he's the most important theologian since John Calvin in the Reformed tradition for us, for modern people, because he was able to combine or to uh, some people have talked about it as his hypostatic uh, union and his, the way he does theology of what is historic Christian confessional orthodoxy with the relevant contemporary questions that people are asking in each generation that they live in. Okay, so he, he had a vision for writing theologies and, and writing theologies creatively that at the same time participated in the confessions of the past and learned from the fathers of the past, and simultaneously were use, was using the language of, to, of the today of his time, asking the questions of today, interacting with the media of today in order to reach people with Christianity, in order to reach people with the gospel. So it's very common to say that at the turn of the 20th century, at the turn of the 19th century and 20th century, Bobbing lives in this era, the ground was moving beneath everybody's feet. And there was, modernity had entered the scene. And, and we talk about political modernity, ecclesiastical modernity, economic modernity, cultural modernity. Uh, every single sphere of life had completely shifted in the 19th century from pre-modern life to modern life. And just a couple of examples of that are the entrance of democracy across all of Europe in 1848 at the Spring of Nations. Radical overnight political modernity in one year, 1848, where democracy, all the, most of the monarchies of Europe get, uh, are unseated in one single year in 1848. This is six years before Bob Inc.'s born. Or ecclesiastical modernity. 1834, for the first time ever in the Netherlands, 1843 in Scotland, you will have a church that will break away from the state and say, we are no longer under the dominion of the eyes of the king. We operate freely. We are a free church, which is normal for us here, right? We are, by definition, free churches. But in Europe, it was a brand new world. It was ecclesiastical modernity or economic modernity, modernity radical industrialization or cultural modernity. Bavink says even in the introduction of this work that the reading of media devours our every blink 
is how he puts it. So he was very upset with the 20th century man because he complained that the reading of multiple newspapers had taken away all their free time. He said, in the old world, everybody had free time to read theology and to, and to be quiet and to commune in nature, with God in nature. But now in the 20th century, multiple sources of media dominate us at every blink. Okay? Uh, I wonder what he would say now. Um, it has gotten worse. Um, but he was talking about the, news, the, the rise of, of, of the fourth sphere, the newspaper industry of the late 19th century that had just really gotten gotten started and he but he was a modern man and that's one of the things he says is that Christians he's always saying this Christians over and over again have to have to learn how to bring orthodoxy into the into unity with with the modern world with with our own particular time Bavink is very famous for example in his own life and we're going to come to Christology here in just one second but uh He's very famous in, in his own life for being the only professor at the Free University of Amsterdam, a Christian university, who in 1908 and 1909, the year this was published, made a presentation to the board that female students be allowed to enter the university. And he was the only professor. He, he pitched it, and no one supported him. And this is in 1909, and he saw this as a necessity of modernization and, and a necessary equality, and rightly so. Uh, but he saw himself as a man that was, that was always embracing change, yet never leaving behind the orthodox confession of the history of the church at the very same, very same time. Okay, that's a broad snapshot of the context here, and it's important to reiterate it as it... A, uh, as it relates to the Christology here that, that we hopefully you were able to read, uh, because what Bavink's doing here, I mean, if you read through it and you've read much theology, one of the things you probably noticed is there's not a ton of creativity in Bavink's Christology. It is a pretty straightforward presentation of what we would call Nicene Christology and Chalcedonian Christology that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit are consubstantial, that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, that he has two, na two natures in one self, one person, right? We, we got all that from him, just like you would have gotten that from Calvin and Augustine, largely. Uh, however, he is subtly in this work responding to exactly the issues of modern Christology, and you, maybe you noticed a few of those in the first few pages, but especially he really addresses them in the first three to five pages of that first chapter, chapter 16. But let me just give you the background so maybe it'll be a little more clear in your mind. Remember when he went to America that second time, his, his quote was that he went on a mission to speak to the youth of Zarathustra. All right, who are they? Who is Zarathustra? Uh, Zarathustra is one of Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the German philosopher's characters in his book, who comes into the marketplace and announces that God is dead and we have killed him. Right, so Nietzsche is writing that in the late 19th century and saying, in Europe, God is finally dead. Religion is dead. And religion is dead and dying out. And it's the youth that know that. It's the youth that, that are going to run with that. And Nietzsche called for a transvaluation of values 
as he put it, a ridiculous way of saying it, that, uh, quite a simple idea. Uh, basically, all it was is that if God is dead, if we now know that God is not real after Darwin, we now know that, as he put it, and the youth now know that, Europe needs a whole new model of ethics because all of Western ethics, as Nietzsche understood it, was grounded on Christian principles, even democracy. And so Nietzsche was talking about new systems left and right, a transvaluate, a new valuation system for ethics. And Bob, that was Bobbing's greatest concern. When he comes and writes this, he's specifically speaking to how Christologies of the late, teen, late 19th century had contributed to the, quote, death of God movement that Nietzsche had talked about, the lack of Christian faith. And the most significant uh, happenings in Christology in that time were that in the 1860s, a man named Ernst Renan, a Frenchman, published a biography of Jesus called The Life of Jesus. And it set it was no one had ever done anything like it before except Friedrich Schleiermacher, who had also written a biography of Jesus. But Ernst Renan came in and wrote a biography of Jesus where he separated the event of Jesus from the idea of Jesus. And that's a category of separation you see Bob Inc. use on the first page of chapter 16 that we read. And the separation between the event and the idea is the separation, as we'd put it in the 20th century, between the Christ of history and the Christ of faith. Okay, so Ernst Renan said there is a difference in the Christ of faith, the Christ that you believe in, a spiritual Christ, and the Christ who actually existed, the Christ of history. And what he did was he said, we can go to the Gospels and we can try to search for the places in the Gospels where you actually see the Christ of history shining through. The Christ of history could not perform miracles. The Christ of history is still dead. You can go find his bones in Palestine, right? The Christ of history is totally different from the Christ of faith. And Ernst Renan, other people had made that separation, Immanuel Kant in particular, but what Ernst Renan said is he said, we actually need to throw away the Christ of faith and embrace the Christ of history. He said, I want my Jesus to be merely physical. I want the cross, the murder of, of Jesus, to be an ethical example of a way to live a self-sacrificial life. I don't need the supernatural aspects. So as before, when people talked about the separation, they would say, well, who cares what the Christ of history is really like? We only need the Christ of faith. Who cares if Jesus actually rose from the dead in history as long as you believe in your spirit that he did? Okay, that was the way they had approached it prior. But with Ernst Renan, he said, no, 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 you can't do that. And right, he's right about that. You can't do that. He said, we just have to embrace whoever Jesus was in history. We have to embrace the physicality of Christ and put away the supernatural." And what that ended up doing is developed a whole world of Christology that develops through Bob Inc's day all the way into the mid-20th century with a figure like Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann, maybe you've heard of it, talked about demythologizing Christology in the spirit of Ernst Renan. We have to, everything supernatural in the Gospels, we have to get rid of if we want to get to the real Jesus. We don't need it. We can preach Christ without supernature, Bultmann would put it. And Bob Inc. is standing in the dead middle of this massive Christological movement 
of demythologizing Christology and demythologizing Christianity and coming in and saying very emphatically, I mean, probably one of the most central claims he makes in all three chapters that he comes back to, particularly in chapter 16 and chapter 18, is that Jesus Christ's body is alive, right? You saw that if you read it. He comes back to it over and over and over again. On the very first page, he says, you cannot separate the idea from the event, And what he's talking about there is he says that the classic Christian confession, true orthodoxy, can have nothing to do with a separation between a Christ of history and a Christ of faith. Whereas the 20th, even the 19th century, pious theologians in the Netherlands wanted to say, well, we're not sure what to say about the Christ of history exactly, but I embrace the Christ of Scripture. People in in his day were saying that. Bavink antes up on them by coming here and in Reformed Dogmatics Volume 3 and saying, no, 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 that's not good enough. It it is not just that you you embrace the Christ of Scripture. You have to say, actually, the Christ of Scripture is the Christ of history. That's how he anteed up on the claim. He says, you cannot just say, well, I don't know what happened in the first century. I'm just going to believe whatever the Christ I read about. And he said, no, no, no. You need to say the Christ of history isn't, Christ of scripture is indeed the man of history at the same time. So in other words, he came with the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of his big uh, ideas in, in in this first chapter especially, is that if Jesus Christ's body can be found in Israel, then there's no point in us being here, Right? And that's one of the most significant. This is how Bavink, uh, and I'm going to point this out in just a minute. There are so many little subtleties in, in this Christology that are very modern. Ways of speaking that Calvin would have never said. And at the same time, what shines through is Bavink's radical commitment to recovering Christian confessional orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of the church in the middle when he's absolutely surrounded by radical departures from that orthodoxy in his own day. Uh, he's playing a, a game in the, in the Netherlands of the 19th and 20th century where he and only a few others are willing to nationally and publicly uh, commit themselves to a truly resurrected Christ. Um, now, uh, last thing I'll say and then just point quickly point out a few things in the text. And I really want to leave the text. Um, I, I have plenty I can say about the text, but I want, I want to leave you guys uh, to have the possibility to, to interact and chat about it or ask questions about it. Um, but uh, the only other thing I want to say about it was that uh, uh, Bavink, in attempting to be orthodox yet modern in all of this, is is interacting with the idea of, he puts it this way in the Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2, that Jesus Christ is the heart of dogmatics, he says, and that Jesus Christ is the center of all theology, of all dogmatics. And in this, this, this is very important. He, he says, in addition, that Christ is the center of the system of dogmatics. In saying that, I just, I just want to point out one, one more distinction for you, and, and that's that for Bavink, there is a difference, and maybe this is new material, there's a difference between systematic theology and dogmatic theology, okay? And he sees himself as writing in this book dogmatic theology, not systematic theology, right? So you can pick up most 
20th and 21st century theologies written in our context, and they're going to say systematic theology, right? You guys have probably seen that. You pick up a John Frame, a Wayne Grudem, um, whatever tradition you might be interested in, and it says systematic theology. Bavink said that especially for the sake of Christology, we need to be writing, he thought, dogmatic theologies. What's the difference? The difference is that a systematic theology is a system of Christian doctrine that is the grammar of an individual person, right? Like Wayne Grudem can write a systematic theology, and it may or may not be tied to any given confession of the church. It doesn't have to be. It's his systematic theology. Bavink did not see himself as writing Herman Bavink's systematic theology. What he sought to do was write a dogmatic theology or a theology in his own present day that at its best was trying to simply speak the history of the church's confession to his reader through modern words, through modern prose. And that's the difference in dogmatic and systematic theology. Dogmatic theology sees itself as merely a participant in a long tradition of speaking the church's confession, the orthodox confession, over and over again in every single generation. And for Christology, he said more than anything, we have to speak dogmatically, not merely systematically. In other words, we have to stand on the church's historic confession that Jesus Christ is divine and that he is resurrected bodily. These are his two big emphases in this text in the midst of the problems of his day. Okay, uh, l- let me point out a few highlights of some of the, the reading, and especially chapter 16, a few, and in a couple things in chapter 17 and 18 in the next 10, 12 minutes. We'll see how that happens. Um, uh, One of the most uh, significant emphases you see at the very beginning of the work, right, and he says this in the introduction, is that the Christian religion does not exist merely in words or in, uh, in doctrine alone, but it is a work of God in word and in fact, in both speech and in deed, which was accomplished in the past. Uh... Again, that's a clouded way of talking about the separation of the history of Jesus from interpretations about Jesus. And he says we can't do that separation. However, in the very first page, 290, one of the very first things he says, and this is to show his modernity, he says that the experience of Jesus Christ, the idea of a divine human being and of a resurrected human being is, quote, in such direct conflict with our experience and with all of our thinking. So he claims on the front end and says from the very beginning, it is very difficult for a 20th century person to believe any of this because the idea of a divine human and a resurrection are completely foreign to modern people. And he includes himself in that. And this is something that John Calvin could have never said. This is something that Martin Luther could have never said. You know, for For Martin Luther, Martin Luther writes about being concerned about being grabbed by demons out of the woods when he would make his walks home at night. That's how Luther understood the world he lived in. He was surrounded by supernature all the time. Luther was afraid of the demons physically dragging him into the woods at night. And Bavink saying, me along with all of you, it is very hard to believe that a man resurrected from the dead. And that's never been the issue in Christian history until modernity. 
People in the old world did not struggle with the supernatural issues. That wasn't the problem. This is the kind of thing that Calvin could have never said. But at this very same time, Bob Inc. comes in and he says on 291 that the Christ figure is not, however, an idea or an ideal. And he's speaking directly there to the issues of the present day. He is not ideal. He is real. He is not just a mere figment of idealism. He is an actual reality. The cross is the central point of all of history, and he actually died. The resurrection is the center of redemption. He actually rose again. Okay, so there's the orthodox meets modern Bob Inc. Uh, uh, doubling down on the fact that there's no negotiations on the history and admitting that even for him, he struggles with belief in the concept of resurrection. Okay, th- this is something very new in the history of Christian theology. The, the second, I think, significant theme of this first chapter is there's lots of focus, if you called it, in the first five to six pages on the name of Jesus Christ. He wants to talk about Jesus, Christ, Lord, Son of God, and how the apostles very, very early and very, very quickly smashed all of those names together. How Peter and Paul would refer to him as our Lord Jesus Christ. All the titles right there side by side. Why? In Bavinck's day, there was already in the German and Dutch Academy, and this was wildly present when I was living in Edinburgh. I had to listen to it all the time from the biblical studies professors. So this is still ongoing. There's an idea out there that's persisting that Jesus is the historical name of this first century figure and that the apostles later on tacked the word Christ onto the figure of Jesus. So again, the reason Bobbing's addressing the name and saying, no, 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 it's super early. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we hear from the very beginning of the apostolic witness, is again, he's subtly addressing the separation between the Christ of history and the Christ of faith in his own, in his own present day. Another significant element I wanted to point out to you in this first chapter was that several times, like on 296, for example, Bavink talks about the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ. And again, this is another aspect of modern Christology that theologians will refer to that is not present in earlier theologies. Nobody prior to modernity would talk about, engage in a psychological examination or thought process about the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ, right? And we see not only Bavink doing this, but Warfield does this. Warfield writes a long essay that's almost like a book on the emotional life of Jesus Christ. And and all of that kind of uh, 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 speech is participating in what we typically call the turn to the self in modernity, right? I don't need to tell any of you that modern people have turned toward the self, that we are less concerned about the community than individualism, right? Western individualism is a product of the turn to the self. But it even shows up in theology, because before modernity, before the 19th century, you would not see any theologians examining and and, um, psychologizing about the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ, thinking, what was Jesus thinking? To what degree was Jesus examining his own self? To what degree was his emotional life in turmoil or peace? That's what Warfield does in his essay. And this comes out very clearly 
as Jesus, as uh, Jesus, no, Bob explores the divine and human nature of Christ. All right, uh, a couple more things, uh, highlights of this chapter, I think, are, are interesting tidbits, and um, we'll, we'll start to move towards the question time. Uh, Bob Inc. on page 299 does what is really the centerpiece of Bob Inc.'s theology. Okay, um, many, many people have pointed this out in the past, but on 299, and then again on two, uh, sorry, on 306, he talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is the center of history and the center of redemption, and that the only way Christ can be the center of history and redemption is if he is also the centerpiece or the mediator of creation. So one of the things that Kuiper and Bavink both are very famous for is, is rebuilding for us, really since John Calvin, there, there's a period post-Calvin where this idea dies off, but that the purpose of Christianity is ultimately about Christ the Creator recreating creation. And that was Bavink and Kuiper's big emphasis. He goes on on 306 to say, that the only way incarnation is possible, Jesus Christ becoming flesh, is if the eternal generation of the Son is actual. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, he says that if you want to second-guess modern, modern person, whether the incarnation happened, then he says, well, you also have to then doubt creation. So in other words, he said, if, if God exists and if God created the world... In other words, if God condescended from outside of space and time to enter into space and time to make anything, then it proves that it is, it is possible for God to communicate himself in a condescended form to creatures in space-time. Therefore, incarnation is possible, right? He says, in other words, if the world was created, then incarnation makes sense, to those that were questioning incarnation. He actually takes that a step deeper and a step further by also saying the reason incarnation is possible, that God can communicate himself as a human being in Christ the Son, is because creation happened, because God communed himself to creatures in creation, because, only because, in the eternal triune communication of Father, Son, and Spirit, God the Father communicates himself in generation to the Son and Spirit. So he says it's God the Father's communication of himself eternally that makes creation possible, that makes incarnation possible, that makes recreation of the world possible. That is, it's often put, and I would argue, the very centerpiece of Bavink's view of Christianity. He calls that, that narrative, okay, the eternal generation of the Son, the condescension of creation, the condescension of incarnation, and therefore recreation of creation in Christ the King to be the essence, he says, of all of Christianity. And you see it pop up three or four times across these three chapters, but very, very particularly on 299 and also on page 306. Uh, let me say a couple more things. I'll stop talking at um, 745. Um, uh, 
he divides the remain. Uh, just to point this out, you, if you read it, you saw this very clearly, but he divides the remainder of the chap- chapter and really also his chapter on humiliation after that in a very concrete formula between the findings of the, the council at Nicaea in 325 and the findings of the council of Chalcedon in 451. And he both negatively then and positively examines the person and work of Jesus according to the controversies and the conclusions of those councils. So he gets very, very, very confessional, but in a very, very, very easy dialogical way that's not over-scholastically outlined, like you might get in like a Lewis Burkhoff if you've read Burkhoff's. It's just simple prose. He doesn't dwell on Apollinarianism, for more than a sentence. He doesn't even really talk about what Apollinarianism is. He just gives you the idea and snippet in brief and moves on. And that's one of the unique elements of Bavinck's theology. It's much more readable than a lot of other contemporary Christologies. All right, I haven't said a word about the next two chapters, um, and I have like four pages of notes on them. I knew this would happen. Uh, it always does. Um, so l- let me stop, and then I, as maybe people talk or ask questions, I will incorporate some of those other elements that I think are, are important highlights, um, perhaps. Is that okay? Cool. All right. How does this work? Yeah. Okay, well, he addresses that very directly, right, if you were able to read it. Um, and the, the, the entire discussion, and I'm trying to remember exactly, oh, here it is, it's on page um, 306 where he gets into this. Um, right, the idea in Philippians 2 that Christ has taken the form of a servant, not considering equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing. Right, it, the Greek word that's used there in Philippians two is the word kenos, is a, is a form of the word kenosis, and so a lot of times people talk about a kenotic Christology, and in kenotic Christology, there's an idea that Jesus actually casts away his divinity in the incarnation altogether, and, and Bavink comes in on two three oh six very clearly talking about the fact that, well, yeah, of course, Paul uses the word kenosis, but it does not mean that Jesus cast away his divinity in incarnation. Uh, However, he veils himself in the form of servanthood, which is the form of human being, a servant form, a servant of God form, right? Uh, Now, he doesn't use the Latin here like he will in uh, RD, in Reformed Dogmatics, and thankfully so, Um, but the doctrine that, that is at the background of all this for, uh, for us Reformed theology people uh, from the time of John Calvin, John Calvin, uh, working from Augustine and others and the church fathers, developed the idea, the theology, uh, 
a theology that was, that was at, trying to answer a very difficult question. If we say that God is immutable, that God is simple, he's not composed of parts and he cannot change. When Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is divine, becomes human, how do you then suggest that God has not undergone change? Because Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, will be God and man forever, right? I mean, this is one of Bobbing's big points. In the incarnation, God has pronounced that he is keeping humanity around forever. Because Jesus Christ is humanity, and he ain't going anywhere. And so humanity is for eternity now. But how is it that the Godhead experiences no change in the Son of God becoming a man and seemingly undergoing change? He is now a temporal being, after all. Well, the way Calvin talks about it, and Bavink completely follows Calvin here on page 306, is to say, uh, is to refer to a doctrine that we call the, in Latin, it was called the extra Calvinisticum, which was kind of a pejorative, a bunch of Lutherans used the phrase, that phrase to, to push back against Calvin. But the, the, what the doctrine says is this, is that when, when the Son of God takes on the form of a servant in humanity, the, the eternal Godhead outside of space and time is never changed. Where, where is the Son of God, the divine nature of the Son of God, while Jesus Christ is on earth as the God-man? He is right there. He is the Trinity. The Trinity is never broken. It, it is not as if the Son of God left the triune family, Father, Son, and Spirit, and went down to earth to be Jesus exclusively. No, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit never changes from eternity the Son of God in His divine nature who is, who is the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man on earth, is simultaneously the eternal Son of God dwelling forever in unbroken relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit at the very same time. Bavink says, I don't know what else to say about it. That's what Bavink says. Just like he ends the final chapter we, we read, remember, by saying, um, he says, how is it that Christ who knew no sin, became sin for us. The center of our redemption from sin in Christ's death and his sacrifice, how is it that a man who knew no sin became sin? Like, what do you mean by that? Bob, did you remember what he says? He says, all I can say is, I do not know. It is a mystery. I don't know what it means to say that he who knew no sin became sin. All I know to say is that he became sin for me. And the same thing applies here to how the Son can be the God-man Jesus Christ and the triune God simultaneously. I don't know, but that is the teaching of Scripture and the church. And uh, so he follows Calvin very directly in, in saying that. Um, I'll, yeah, let me stop talking about that with that. What else, what else do we want to talk about? Okay, again, Bavink in, in chapter 2, I believe, or, or, or sorry, chapter 2, chapter 17 or 18, well, I believe he, he starts talking about this in connection with the exaltation. Um, Bavink follows, again, very straightforwardly John Calvin's interpretation of the descent into hell. Let me say on the front end 
that while the majority position in the Reformed tradition is the one I'm about to explain, which is Bob Inc. and Calvin's view of Christ descent into hell, um, there are a number of more recent Reformed theologians that have departed from that view and that take uh, 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 the, the other view that I'll, I'll explain as well. So Bob Inc. and Calvin, Bob Inc. completely agrees with Calvin in that the clause in the Apostles' Creed that talks about the descent into hell when Jesus Christ dies. Uh, the original word in the Apostles' Creed is the descent into Hades, by the way, which means the domain of the dead. And uh, Calvin and Bobbing both take that to merely be his descent into death at the cross, his utter agony of being forsaken at the cross. They do not think it means in any way that Christ's spirit descended to the domain of the dead, Sheol, as we know it from the Old Testament, to some say, free the captives of Sheol and, and usher them into heaven. Uh, Sheol is often called by Jesus in the Gospels, Abraham's bosom, right? And so a lot of people in earlier times developed a theology that said, well, Second Peter, uh, he did descend into the place of Sheol, Abraham's bosom, and, set, and claimed victory over death and ushered Abraham and the faithful of the old covenant into the heavenly life. Okay, that was one way. Another way was that he actually went to hell itself, um, Gehenna, which I think is very problematic, and preached his gospel to the dead souls in hell, giving them now an opportunity to be converted because they had not known about Jesus, obviously, before they died. Calvin's view in the Reformed tradition says no to all that and says, no, Jesus did not go anywhere into the depths. He died and he rose again. His soul immediately went to be with the Father while he waited to be resurrected from the dead. Um, uh, that is by far the majority view of, I say, our tradition, our Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. However, there are some that, that also take the view uh, that Jesus actually did descend into Sheol to usher Abraham and others into the heavenly life. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested in reading about that, Matthew Emerson just published a book on this, an evangelical theology of the, of the descent into hell, where he argues for the, for the minority position in the Reformed tradition. Uh, but he explores all the nuances of Calvin and Augustine and Bavink and others. So. They're all from you. Come on. Renan, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, th actually, there is a massive resurgence of Boltmann's theology right now, especially in the academy at the University of Chicago. Um, places like, like Princeton as well. Um, but, but nothing, ev the, you know, Francis Schaeffer is so famous for, for being so helpful to us by, by telling us that nothing ever stays in the academy, right? It's that typically the local church operates about a decade or two or three behind whatever the big ideas are happening in the, in the theological academy of the time. And uh, so Boltmannian uh, demythologized Christology is being preached from pulpits all over the U.S. Um, t today. That, that's an absolute fact. Um, and, and so we still have something like this very, very, very present in our context. Um, 
I don't know that off the top of my head. I mean, I'd be please somebody else answer if 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 you can think of another or what you might have heard somewhere uh, uh, a way of undermining classical Christology in some of these ways. I mean, I, I, it will probably jog my memory, but I, I'm very happy to enter in discussion about it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> hey, we were we were talking, we were talking just before, and um, man, I, I used to go to Princeton every year for a conference, and it was like my absolute favorite thing to do. I mean, my wife and I every year, uh, it was absolutely amazing. So I love Princeton. Well, we don't, we don't think that Jesus Christ in his human nature, in his humiliation, knew all things, right? So, um, I mean, this is a classical, this is a pretty class, classical aspect of, of, of Reformed Christology. Uh, Jesus, I mean, you, like, in, in the question itself, it gets answered, right? Because uh, he did not, he said, I do not know the day and the hour. Uh, Jesus Christ learned, and I mean, how did Jesus learn to read? You know, his mother Mary taught him how. That's how. He went to school. He, 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 did, he wasn't born knowing that two plus two equals four. And he, he didn't know everything. He was fully human. Does the Son of God know everything? Absolutely. And the ontological trinity is never broken and while Christ is the, the humiliated God-man on earth. So Jesus Christ does not know everything. Not even close. Jesus Christ does not know anything, did not know anything about quantum mechanics or, or what would happen in 2021 as in his humiliated state as the God-man on earth. But in his exaltation, he, he, he is omniscient. So uh, that would be my, my way of, of saying it. The pastors can clean all, all my messes up later, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. So this, this is—I'd be interested in hearing what other people say about it. This is this is uh, this is very difficult to answer, and and um, certainly the answer has to be no. Uh, he 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 had to learn who he was. I mean, there's no doubt about that because as a baby, when he's first born, he doesn't even have self-consciousness, right? So his his self-consciousness has to develop over time. Uh, Going farther than that and saying to what degree did he know and how early, I, I, I know that people have toyed with that, and Bovink does, and Warfield. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, that, that's the only thing I know to say. What about you guys? Anybody else have a better answer than that? Mary knew. That's right. Mary knew. Mom always knows. Mary knew from the good. That's a great answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, what, what do we recommend? 
Yeah. Well, let me say this. Uh, the reason I think that Bob Inc. is so important as an example for us is that Bob Inc.'s method is what I think is the best, uh, the best method for, for our continuation in the modern economy, in, in the modern world that we live in. Uh, if Bob Inc. was here today and you asked, you know, what's the best theology that we should be reading right now in the church Bob Inc. would not say his books. Why? Well, because he would say, well, well, my books are dealing with, with the problem that Nietzsche and Renan and Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Schleiermacher had brought to the church, which are specifically 19th century problems. Bob Inc. would say, you need to be reading the same style, orthodox yet modern, but that's dealing with the questions of the today very specifically in the grammars of today. So, so Bob Inc., unlike some of his predecessors, and he complains about this, and, and look, as much as I love, love, love to read uh, the scholastic theologians uh, that, that predate Bob Inc. by a century or so, the, the, Bob Inc. said, I don't want to do what they did. What they did was get, give us logical outlines of, of theology. And he said, well, what the people of the church need, a true church dogmatics, has got to address the questions that are, that are present, right? Uh, Bob Inc. would not, the controversies that we are facing right now, Bob Inc. doesn't address. And uh, he was able to weave dogmatic theology directly into the speech of exactly what was ailing the church of his present day. And, I, and that's, that's what we need. That's what he would say we need. He would, he would be saying, well, who has done that? Who, who, you know, if you're looking for the systematic theology or dogmatic theology out there to read, he would be asking uh, who in the present day is, is doing high-level theology in direct response to the issues of the 21st century. And he would even say that, an, uh, that a theology from the 1980s and 1990s is so useful but also, but also outdated at the same time, right? So... Uh, because, whoa, 2021 is very different from 1990, right? Um, and, and so for that reason, uh, I, I think that's what I've learned from him most. But for me, that, that trickles down into how we talk to our children, how we preach, if you preach, how we teach Sunday school, how we do youth ministry, all of it, because it's, it's taking, you know, I want... I want you know, in the most simple way possible, my kids to be able to say the same things that Gregory of Nazianzus said, but to be able to apply, or, you know, the church fathers, to, to know something about, to be able to know, like, that we are commune, that we commune as one body with the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, all the way up through the centuries of the church, Christ's body, and what they taught and what they believed about the Bible, and to be able to do that in conversation and with clear direction on exactly the issues that are facing them as my kids step into middle school, you know? Um, that, that's what I've learned from him, I'll say, uh, if, if that answers your question.
Yes. Same genealogy, right? Uh, so, and, and the reason I didn't even mention anything like that because because the Jesus seminars it, it is just the offspring. Of, uh, uh, I don't have all my history in the Jesus seminars off the top of my head straight. Maybe maybe you're better than me at this. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. They had to go through every single saying of the gospel and decide, and then rebuild the gospels to give you the Christ of history. I mean, exactly the project of the 19th century, right? It, it hasn't changed. Um, it's the genealogical derivative of. Uh, you, you have it in, in Immanuel Kant is really the starting point, and Schleiermacher, and Renan, and uh, and Schweitzer, and Boltmann, and Jesus Seminar, and we're still we're still living in this, but very much. I mean, when I was doing my PhD at Edinburgh, like we were having, I was particip- I was I was sitting through seminar Jesus Seminar seminars, and I mean uh, everything, it, it was very present day stuff. I mean another thing that's that's very popular. In Old Testament studies in this world is uh, the documentary hypothesis um, that, that many of you may have heard of. And the documentary hypothesis, hypothesis is simply a way of saying that uh, who wrote the Torah, who wrote Genesis to Deuteronomy, or who wrote Isaiah. It's been applied to Isaiah very commonly. And the documentary hypothesis is a 19th century idea that says that there are at least four, five, six, seven, eight authors of the Torah all in different times and centuries and places that are making up law and rules and kind of smashing it all together and editing it, editing it, and that's what you now have in your English Bible. And that's, a, that's the Old Testament side of this same issue, right? And I, I sat in a seminar once on the documentary hypothesis, and um, a man from the University of Paris was presenting, and he, he gave uh, a seminar on, on the hypothesis, and he, he recounted... Uh, hundreds of previous ways of theorizing about the hypothesis like this chapter's this author this chapter's this author and he said and in this series of lectures I'm going to present a new model right and so he had pinned up on the board in like this thing like here are the different the hundreds of different models that are out there on who actually wrote the Torah and I'm going to give you a new theory a new idea today and you know, the thought that I had, even if you don't believe, you know, even if you're willing to say the Old Testament's not uh, history, um, even if a person was willing to say that, it, my thought was simply like, at, at, at what point after the 599th different theory where every scholar disagrees with each other, do you just simply say, hey guys, this is not working, right? Uh, if, if nobody can agree on who wrote it and all these different models, then we have to throw everything out. Maybe Moses did, right? I mean, that was, that was the, the conclusion that I think a lot of us walked away from. Yeah, I'm just going to stay with Moses um, instead of the 500 other models that are out there. So it's also very present in the Old Testament studies as well. But. Are there any questions? Hearing none, uh, 
Well, let me just say this. Um, if you've been able to read through this book, this, this is the book that um, when I get asked, I mean, I'm a pastor, and when I get asked by anybody, um, hey, give me like the one theology book that will both push me and bring me into a state of doxological worship as I read, I say, go get Bob Vink's The Wonderful Works of God. Cough up the 50 bucks. It's expensive, but it's... Huh? Oh, man, that's a deal. Okay, well, um, I need to just buy a big box of them and start giving them out. Um, I, I say that... Th I tell people that this is the book to go to. Um, it, it, it's 100 years old. Um, it, it's very much still re relevant, but it, it's a beautiful, beautiful work of, of reformed... Theology that is truly doxological from top to bottom, and maybe I'll just leave, leave us with this. I mean, one of the the way Bobbing ends his Reformed Dogmatics four volume and uh, many many of his essays, and he was so so big on this um, throughout his whole career, was he said that the church of his time, which was a very very conservative church, had broke away from what he saw as, they saw as the liberalism of the state church of his day. He was very concerned that the church evaporate into conservatism, as he put it. And for him, conservatism is dead orthodoxy instead of living orthodoxy. He said conservatism, he said we have to be conservative, we have to conserve the confessions of the past, but we can never be conservativeists, where we draw so many lines in the sand and boxes all around us that, as he put it, we might, we might confess a confession, but we've stopped confessing the faith. And he wrote his theologies to be truly confessional and orthodox and to, and to shake people up into living faith. He wanted, he wanted people to have the experience of worship as they read. And, um, and unlike many other great Reformed theologies, I think he accomplishes that. Um, in his style and in his manner and, and, and in his winsomeness. So, um, yeah, I'll leave it, leave it with that. Uh, I'm happy to pray. Yeah, yeah. God, we give you thanks tonight. We give you thanks for our lives, for the common grace gifts of air and friendship and community and buildings. And we give you even more thanks for redemption through the Son that we've been reading about and thinking about for the Christ. We praise your name, Jesus, and uh, we thank you for your servant, Herman Bavink, and, and the ways that he's ministered to us this evening and, and throughout our, our reading. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts tonight, even, even through talking about Frenchmen in the 19th century, Lord, that even things like that would, would work their way into us loving the Son more. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you.